Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations with artists, I invite you to come visit David's Werner Gallery exhibitions in person. We're located in New York, Los Angeles, London, Paris, and Hong Kong. New exhibitions open each month. Plan your visit at davidswerner.com. I'm David Levi Strauss, and I'm a writer. I'm Mick Tausig, and uh, I do a lot of different things. One of them is hang out with Levi. From David Werner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. We project our beliefs onto these images. Our belief in them is not based on their authenticity. It's a projection. So that sort of changes the parameters of the inquiry. What I've picked up from photography is a writing style which lends itself to uh, montage forms where you slip uh, a page or a paragraph, maybe with a drawing, into, into a book, into a sequence. I'm Lucas Werner, and every episode features a conversation. We're taking artists, writers, philosophers, designers, and musicians, and putting them in conversation with each other to explore what it means to make things today. This week's pairing, the poet and writer David Levi Strauss and the anthropologist Michael Tausig. For over two decades now, David Levi Strauss, who goes by Levi, has been an authority on photography and its effect in and on societies. This week, he and his good friend Mick Tausig, who is both renowned and notorious in academia for his radical approach to anthropology, came on the podcast to talk about an idea that has spurred debate since the first images were created. Is seeing believing? Their jumping-off point is Levi's new book, Photography and Belief, which we published through David's Werner Books this fall. It's an especially timely piece of writing. In an era of surveillance and deepfakes and camera phones, images are more powerful than they've ever been, and as a topic of discussion, still every bit as fraught and political. As we delve into this new book of yours, Photography and Belief, uh, Levi, I was hoping you could take us a little bit through the history of your engagement with photography. When I was 18 years old, I went around the world on a ship, on a floating university, and I started to take photographs then, and I photographed everywhere in the world that we went for six months. And then when I got back, I applied in photography to a place called Goddard College in Vermont, and went there and studied photography with somebody named Jeff Weiss, who was a great teacher. I was already a poet by then. I was already writing poetry and other and fiction and other kinds of writing. So I was putting photography together with writing almost from the beginning. And then during my time at Goddard, I went to visual studies workshop in Rochester, which at the time, this was 1975. At the time, it was, I think, the best photography school in the country. And I studied with Nathan Lyons and a lot of other people and started to write about photography. That was the first of that for After Image magazine. Sort of at what point did the writing about photography become, I would say, I would even call it more of a theoretical preoccupation. It's one thing to, of course, to write, let's call it ekphrastically, about the images as they exist. 
But this book is really, Photography and Belief is really a theory of how photographs and really technical images circulate and the work that they're doing in society. That's right. So all of that was really there from the beginning. I wrote about art and photography because it was a way to write about everything else. I could bring anything into that. And from the beginning, I wrote about social and political issues and used the essay form, which I went from writing poetry to writing essays, and I found the essay form to be virtually unlimited, that I could do anything that I needed to do. I could tell stories, I could write fiction, I could even include poetry, I could do anything in, in the essay form. It was wide open. And Mick, I heard you, I heard a kind of sound of assent, as it were, when, when Levi started talking about the essay form. I know that you know, your style is also one that brings together lots of ways of uh, communicating information. I was going to just backtrack a little and ask Levi about the relationship between his interest in poetry when he was a taxi driver in San Francisco and photography uh, and explore the back and forth. For the purposes of this book, I would say when I was 11 or 12, I gave my life to Jesus in Kansas and gave my life to the church. And I started to, when the preacher would go out of town, I would do the liturgy. I even I gave sermons when I was 11 or 12. Uh, and I thought that was going to be the, the way I spent my life. Um, soon after that, at 13 or 14, I read Rambeau, and <laughs> that blew my mind. And then all I wanted to do was be a poet. And then right after that, I started doing political organizing. So all of these things were all mixed up really from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and photography came as, a, as an interest in images a little later on, but all of these things were mixed really from the very beginning. Can you be more uh, specific about connections you discern between poetry uh, when you were working with, living with, communing with the poets in San Francisco and interest in the photograph and the photographic essay? For example, in this book, the new book, Congratulations, there's a lot about magical images in pre-modern societies, assumptions people make, that you make, and so forth. And you're reading Greek philosophy, I think, in San Francisco with Duncan. Right. We read the Iliad in Greek. I did that with Robert Duncan and uh, other poets, and it took us seven years to get through the Iliad in Greek. It was a long-standing tradition, both in San Francisco and certainly in New York, of poets writing about art. So that tradition was very well known to me. I mean, the New York School Poets, everyone knows about that, but it also was true in San Francisco with my main teacher, Robert Duncan, but also Bill Berkson was uh, part of this group in San Francisco, and he was writing regularly for Art Forum and everyone else uh, about art and uh, the relation between poets and especially painters was very prominent. Writing about photography, because I had learned about photography, I'd learned how to make photographs. 
and was trying to put them together with words, with text, it seemed like a logical move to begin to write about photography and what photographs were doing in the world because I noticed that they were having a big effect since people weren't thinking about it in the terms that I was going into very much. So it felt like there was a need for it. You've done a lot of uh, thinking, and I remember hearing you talk on relationship between image and text. And I'm wondering about the connections you might be excited about between images in words and images in pictures. I've always been excited about the relation between the two. William Burroughs talked about this thing called the third image, which is when you put a text and an image next to each other, they start to do this third thing. That was the most exciting part about it for me, both in trying to make that happen myself, but also noticing it happening in the world, that when you put, and it's something, to this day, it's still, it's not theorized as much as it should be. Almost all images that we see, whether they're online or in print, are accompanied by words, but we don't talk about the relation between the two. And it is, it's a dyad. It's a it's something else that happens in the middle. And we don't know very much about that. As a practitioner, it's always been exciting to me to put these two together because you never know what's going to happen. And, and the results are often remarkable. In your book, you distinguish between the still image and what you see as superseding it the last 10 years or so with the video camera, phone video camera and so forth, that the image realm is now much more one of flow than of the static still image. Um, talking about Burroughs raises the uh, question of images that are juxtaposed into what we often call montage. So here you have still photographs, still images, but put on the same page to create certain effects which is what you see in Burroughs and Geisen's scrapbook, for example. You didn't talk much about montage, and I'm wondering how montage might figure into your feeling and argument about the contrast between the still image and what you call flow. Yeah. Yeah, I think it will <laughs> come in the future more. The other thing that I think of immediately is Roland Barthes' The Third Meaning, where he talks specifically about montage in film and in, in Eisenstein particularly. But when I talk about the flow now where we're inundated with images coming at a very rapid rate and the, the, the primacy of the still image has receded a little bit. It's, although, as I'm saying that, I'm thinking of, for instance, the the video, the recent video of George Floyd's murder. And even though we all saw that excruciating video, that very unusual video where you saw the murderer looking into your eyes, in, there's a still image of him looking into the camera 
with his knee on George Floyd's neck. And that image is will have lasting value and will persist. So the still image is still, because of the way we think, because of the way the mind and the optic nerve works, still images still have a certain longevity. But the flow is what we are surrounded by all the time. And it's not discrete images. It's, it's a constantly changing flux. So the word flow, when I was first reading it in your book, I was thinking of a continuous stream, but now it seems obvious that it's actually a jumbled up stream. One, one goes from one image sequence to another image sequence to another image sequence. That's right. That's what you're getting at more than the notion of a continuous stream. That's right. Uh-huh. Now, going back to the George Floyd uh, video, it seems that there's been, a, until recently, a taboo on imaging violence especially killing. But now we have this new instrument, the video, phone video camera, a new territory has been opened up which challenges all of that. I'm wondering how what you've written might fit into this issue of the, the question about the, the a new chapter, the novelty, a new turn in history of the image that is, has come to, uh, come to burst uh, through the uh, through the phone? The novelty has come in the ubiquity of the video camera, not the video camera itself. The fact that we are all carrying in our pocket a quite good still camera and an incredibly good video camera is a historical accident. These things still take a while to have their effects because of, again, the way our brains work and the way we receive information and the way we process information. It still takes a while uh, for them to have effects on us and how we actually see and how we think about what we see and how we believe images. I wanted to drill into that a little bit, this question of how we believe images. I mean, one thing that the I think the book brings up, of course, is our natural predilection to believe images, dwells on that quite a bit, but also it should be that we're entering a time where we should be doubting many more of the images we're confronted with than it seems like you're saying we are. And I'm curious, just because images are so easily manipulated and so often are indeed uh, different or changed or something like that, and video, of course, too. And I'm curious about that tension, the kind of persistent desire to trust and believe uh, to love images, as it were, to go at them irrationally, and the, the rational knowledge that so many of them are not indeed what they seem to be. This is a this is a huge subject right now because the boundaries keep being moved about believability in images and the ability to manipulate images. I mean, when uh, the digital image first replaced analog, you know, there were a lot of people who said that's the end of belief in images. Um, The fact that it wasn't the end of that belief led me to realize that it it wasn't about that, that we project image, we project our beliefs onto these images. 
images have always been manipulated. Traditional images and technical images have always been manipulated from the beginning of time. And our belief in them is not based on their authenticity or their verification or their evidential reality. It's a projection. So that sort of changes the parameters of the, of the inquiry. I recently just saw recently yesterday was sent the a PDF of the book that you contributed to that you and Levi contributed to. And, you know, at the heart of, of this is, is I think a little bit what Levi is calling the magic in images or the magic in photography. And I'm wondering if that's something you could talk a little bit about, how you understand that in sort of your anthrop more anthropologically oriented or your, your work as an anthropologist. What I've picked up from photography, as is already implied in the conversation, is a writing style which lends itself to uh, montage forms. And, and that's very obvious in my book on African palm or on palm oil, where you slip uh, a page or a paragraph, maybe with a drawing, personal drawing, or maybe with a photograph, into, into a book, into a sequence. And so um, how does one formulate the relationship between this heterogeneity is uh, where I often think about, I often associate with shamanic uh, seances that I've been part of over three decades in the uh, south, uh, southwest of Colombia. But there's no, I have no discrete theory about connecting something called magic with the images, even though the shamanic seances rely heavily on image sequences due to the taking of hallucinogenic uh, drugs. Which brings me to a point where uh, Levi, David, especially towards the end of the book, revs up, accelerates the energy uh, in pleading for a type of magic, a return to imagination or aspects of an imagination that precedes what Flusser calls technical images. And I, my feeling about more, I don't know what to call it, pre-modern world of images in my, that I read about in anthropology is that the image never comes on its own. If we're talking about high art, Renaissance, Reformation, whatever it might be. We're talking about Western Europe, fine art. That's one thing, pictures on a wall. But the sorts of magic that uh, Levi is looking at, it seems to me, or wants, is always um, associated with, accompanied by song, music, a certain smell due to, to, to incense and so on, manipulation, physical manipulation or, or massaging of the body, maybe the use of colors, maybe an atmosphere that will last eight to 12 hours with the you know, consequent effects, maybe in groups and the gossip and the talking and the humor and the pain that may be involved and so forth. So we can focus in on an image, meaning a discrete visual image, but it will be an image that is, um, how should I put it, diluted or even perverted, so to speak, by these other sensory aspects. You're picking up on a frustration there. Uh, when, when you say an image never comes on its own, it, and that's in my 
lifetime of looking at images and trying to analyze them and trying to understand how they work in the world, there's a tendency to separate them out as discrete objects. Certainly, this was something that was done in the history of art photography, which always drove me crazy. But it's done across the board. And the fact is that an image never comes on its own. It's always surrounded by many other things. And it's the relation among those things that is telling. But it's very difficult to deal with that in trying to analyze it or trying to account for it because there's so much going on. So it leads to uh, a different kind of writing. I mean, that's certainly what I find in your work, Mick, and and, uh, the trajectory over the last, I don't know, 10 years, 15 years. The writing, your writing has really changed to try to participate in this, to try to account for it, to try to make a new imagination or to to at least allow for a new imagination i mean rereading this book my book now i realize how much of it is about removing obstacles to an understanding of photographic images just to try to clear some ground <laughs> i mean you know i've been writing this thing for a long time I and mean, i got a guggenheim grant to write it 15 years ago and then i ended up writing other things other books and I taught the, this subject for 15 years. And in a way, I didn't, want to, I didn't want to ground it out. I wanted to keep it up in the air, so I, I didn't put it down. But this, I mean, Lucas, when you prompted me to write this book, it was a chance to, again, try to clear some ground. I had to deal with the things that were there that have standing. And all these books that I'm referring to here are, are little books. They're, you know, it means on photography, Bark's Camera Lucida, Berger's essay, Appearances. That's where he really puts all of his thinking about this. Uh, Sontag's on photography, Flusser's Towards the Philosophy of Photography. These are all books. So <laughs> it made sense to try to make a little book and clear a little ground. But uh, I don't know if, uh, and in that way, it's weirdly, it's a little like devotional literature or something. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you said devotional literature right now. You, you know, one thing that struck me on the rereadings is, you know, the very beginning of the book, uh, the very first chapter is seeing is believing is there's a real kind of tangent about love and love as a structure that can be applied to belief and belief, particularly in images. And of course, the very end of the book, on the last couple of pages, you once again, belief requires a like love. There's a kind of coming back to that whole question of love. And I'm curious if outside of the framework of the book, you could just talk a little bit about using the structure of love as you understand it to help, un- to help mine our interaction with images and our belief in them. That's, that's a very big subject. What you're pointing to is, you know, it betrays my background as a poet and not only as a poet, but as a poet that comes out of a tradition um, which was exemplified by Robert Duncan in my case. He always called himself a a romantic poet and he did it very pointedly uh, because people reacted against it. And so you you can't do that now. This was at an even more anti-romantic time than we're in now. 
but it's there in my DNA and my certainly in my aesthetic DNA. So I kind of have to try to deal with it somehow. And uh, in this book, you're right, it comes in at the beginning and at the end. And I do think that believing it's not just in the etymology, it's in the practice that believing in something, it's, it's leaving, it's loving. And as such, it's, it can't be reduced to other kinds of affects, I would say. Further, I think, you know, part of what's so fascinating about love as, as a structuring mechanism for understanding this is it brings to bear precisely that tension between what inheres in the object and what is brought to the object by the subject, right? So what's projected onto the object. And I like at the end that, you know, you say love is not necessarily something that one controls, but eventually it becomes an act of will. And it does feel like, you know, we may be conditioned or images may have the seductive effect on us that they do. Uh, nonetheless, eventually we're constructing a dynamic of believing or of proper loving in order for them to continue to serve their purpose or their function in our lives, a, a largely social function, as you call it, uh, at different points. Absolutely. That is, as you say, in that first chapter begins with this Julia Kristeva quote that ends memory, sight, and love or will. And when that, when I first read that small piece that was translated in, a, as I remember, in an independent film magazine, I think, Wide Angle, uh, it really grabbed me for its specificity, talking about belief in images. And I want to ask about the relationship of belief, as you working with that, and your your advocacy that photos are not representations but emanations. And I would like you to go a little bit more into that uh, dichotomy and also take into account that emanations sounds to me like a physical impact uh, on the viewer of, a, of a, something is emanated and it meets the, meets the subject, meets the viewer. And does that not open up the whole question of spectatorship to Abby Warburg and the interest in the impact of a visual image on the human body and not so much the optic nerve that you've been uh, focusing upon so far in the, in the discussion. Mm. I'd say two, two things. One, in saying that there were a lot of things that I needed to leave out of this book, one of the biggest <laughs> things that I left out was Abby Warburg. At one point, there was an entire chapter which now seems like it's more like a book or it's at least a book length essay on Abby Warburg and his ideas about the force of the image and exactly the way you're describing it. But this thing about representation and emanation comes from the realization at a certain point that I had that technical images, photographs and films and videos and digital images and all that we're in now, the way that we, when they were, quote, invented at the beginning of the 19th century, there was a certain projection of belief onto them that I thought didn't arise at that time. It comes from an earlier time of icons, of sacred images, 
that were thought to be not made by hand, not touched by humans, but to issue from God himself uh, itself. And so I tried to figure out how that got transferred in all of this rhetoric about the objectivity of photographs and, and their particular relation to the real, which never quite made sense to me, but I knew that it was it was a strong impulse. But what you're talking about there, Mick, I think is I mean, images do things. Certainly in that previous period when they operated as emanations and as they were treated as beings uh, that had agency and they would do things. I was thinking that the emanation, the idea of the emanation, fits in neatly with your concern with belief, that belief becomes something that's not purely cognitive or even cerebral, but it's a somatic yes. uh, as well. Uh, yeah, completely. I was going to ask you, I had a <laughs> PhD advisor who loved using synonyms uh, that gradually took you away from the word or concept one was using. And I was thinking, what if you substituted for belief words like impacted or curious or enchanted? <laughs> Say the photograph... The photograph impacts me. The photo, I'm curious. We're all very curious about an image. It's just different to believe. And I think these are the issues that you're struggling with, right? The verity of, of an image and what happens if there's no belief, like Lucas is asking in the uh, manipulation of the image and so forth. But we could all agree that a particular image, manipulated or not, can impact us enormously. We can be made very curious. And certain images are going to enchant us, right? Yeah, I have a perverse attachment to belief. I'll never let go of it, <laughs> no matter what synonym you give me. But those things are, yeah, they're there too. But uh, I, I think the interesting thing about the synonyms for me is that they address the one side of the belief dipole, as it were, being affected in a powerful way. And the and this and they impact us, or we're curious about them, and then that willing decision to com to commit to the image, or however you want to say it, that seems to be what belief captures so well. Both the the receiving overwhelmed aspect of encountering a powerful image, and also the decision at a certain point to to vest it with power. Yes, and we see it. My God, I mean, what we're in right now, we see it all around us. It's not. I mean, people believe they're seeing the same thing and they believe something completely different about it. Mm -hmm. the United States now, it, you see it in political polarization, but it's more than political. It's, it's belief and faith. And faith is, has to do with yeah, credibility and trust. Trust, really, that's what it means. Yeah, I, I was going to ask about that side of it too, that belief... A network of beliefs or a context of belief is, of course, often a backdrop against which an image takes on meaning. And it's it, it seems like the 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 belief structure you're interested in, Levi, is really the interaction with the image between an image and an individual. And I'm curious if you have feelings or thoughts about that kind of substrate against which all my I mean, my feeling is that all works of visual art and certainly all photographs take on their meaning for us in a given moment. 
Yes, I think so. I mean, here I'm trying to keep it segregated to photographic images, which is hard enough to do because even when when we shifted to digital, they're no longer literally photographs. They're not light writing. They're, they don't have anything to do with light anymore. Uh, so even to call them photographs is a stretch. But certainly it, it does open up to any kind of representation and any kind of visual expression. Levi, I was thinking about this, what I call following your text, I hope, faithfully, or uh, this uh, flusser idea of that images coming in the 19th century to save text. And I've been thinking about my university uh, culture that I've been in for 50 years. Um, and I was thinking about the sharp opposition to the image. I remember when I first got to the university, I teach in, in, in uh, New York City, there was no film library, for instance. And that was 1993. And generally, I thought that there was a sh opposition all the way to uh, film and to, more generally, to the image. It was the text. It strikes me that there is really um, a, a, a battleground, a hostility in the uh, social sciences and uh, languages and so forth to the, to the use of the image, to the image per se. Most definitely. I mean, I think here right away of Leo Steinberg, who was a figure in art history who talked about, I mean, Flusser talks about it too, textolatry uh, yeah. and, and the, the primacy of text over image. And the two have always been in conflict and will always be in conflict, I maintain. That's part of the relation. That's part of the reason that they do the things that they do. But, but Leo Steinberg made it an entire illustrious career in art history by actually looking at pictures and refusing to um, bow to other art historians who would look at it say, you haven't dealt with the texts enough and the texts say something different. And he would say, well, look at the picture. You can see it will tell you how to look at it. You don't need a text to do that. And it was, it was quite controversial and it got him in a lot of trouble over the years, although he, you know, he he was too good, had too many chops for them to really hurt him very much. But but it was a, a suspect idea that images are not and needn't be subservient to text, or that text had has just had more authority, more. It had to be given more weight. It, it, that that definitely has not gone away, and I mean you're um, finding it in in academe. I'm sure that it's gone up and down, you know, it, in fashion, and that it's disciplinary, as all things in academe academia are. But yeah, there's a there's a real animosity towards the authority of of image. Can I mention something that may tickle the fancy? You told us about your early interest in religion. 
and how that uh, was dissipated by reading Rambeau. <laughs> but it sounds, it sounds very, it does sound religious, this emphasis you put on belief. If I look at, I think, on page, the last page of the book, and I, th- I think you start off with this similar idea, quote, if we do not find a way to believe what we see in images, we will lose the ability to act socially. And I'm wondering about the, what I'll call testamentary evidence. When we were talking, when I was talking about uh, video, phone video images of scenes that were never before shared or even portrayed, it seems to me that this is an appeal to a justice for example, the video of George Floyd. This is an appeal to a justice beyond the law. In fact, the law sort of squashes this. It, it, it translates the power of the image into protocols of a law court. But there's a, a much, uh, I think, much more profound cry here, much more profound uh, message, which is you could call the religious one for justice. Uh, anyway, there's a sort of almost Hegelian uh, rhythm to this. Was a young kid, age 10 or 12, you're very much um, into this religious world. And, and you have mentioned a couple of times the place of God and the place of the face of God and, and so forth. So it might be interesting to speculate on this sort of eternal return. Yeah. I mean, as you can imagine, Peter Lamborn Wilson, I talk about this a lot about every week Uh, but i always say that in the large in the history of the world beliefs don't ever don't go away they just get transferred Mm. to other things and i think if i apply that to my own personal life that's that's certainly true i mean i was i was totally committed when I was 11 or 12, I gave my life to it. And as I say, I, ke- I kept giving my life to Jesus and he kept giving it back to me. But the, that way, way of being in belief didn't go away. It got transferred to other things. It got transferred uh, into politics, into the law at times, into uh, art. There's something I I mean, I think you've characterized it pretty well that there are there are features of belief that get projected onto different things, but the fun the fundamental urge is still there. And I, I would admit to that for sure. Um and I think images, you know, images have a lot to do with that. They certainly did with me. Right. Um, Levi and Mick, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. And what a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Lucas. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. You can find out more about the artists on this series by going to davidswerner.com slash dialogues. And if you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help other people discover the show. I'm Lucas Werner. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you join us again next time.